Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about political parties. So, Terrell, I think I will, uh, you know, take the reins today. Mm. And uh, I apologize to our viewers now, listeners. <laughs> and I'll be the one to uh, ask a what if. Oh, joy. So much excitement. Terrell. What if you were sitting there? Where's there? Late Sunday uh, evening. Where's there? And uh, you were you were Patrick Mahomes on the Kansas City Chiefs. Oh, <laughs> I'm firing the whole team. I'm taking Patrick I've, Mahomes. I'm making myself GM, and I'm firing my entire offensive line. He threw. A 40, eh, that might not have been 40 yards. It might have been closer to 28 to 30. 28 to 30 yard pass while being sacked. He was literally horizontal. And the receiver had the goal to catch it with his face mask, his helmet, (laughs) and watch it bonk off it. Like, what more could he have done? Oh my God. Anyone who says Patrick Mahomes lost the Super Bowl for the Chiefs does not understand football, does not understand anything, and should not be in the conversation because that man did everything he could for his offensive line to treat him worse than the Detroit Lions treated Matthew Stafford. All I got to say. (laughs) I'm not angry at all, obviously. Very fired up. Well, I guess what I'm really getting at here is uh, what did you uh, think of the Super Bowl in the highlights? Um, highlights, highlights, highlights. I really like the Cheetos commercial with Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher. Mm. I just really like them together, so I was kind of a sucker once they popped on. And then it was one of my favorite songs. Like, it wasn't me ah. with Shaggy. Um, so I, I thought it was funny. You know what? I liked, I don't know why, but I liked the uh, the State Farm commercial with Paul Rudd and uh, Drake in it. Okay, that one was good. And we all know that Drake's new album has to have some reference to, like, Drake, that. Drake from State Farm. Why can't I talk? Drake or Jake? Drake. (laughs) Drake from State Farm. Um, So that's going to be really fun. But other highlights. Halftime show was eh. It was okay. It was cool that he did most of it in the stands versus your traditional on the field, spread across the field. I liked kind of the techno look that he had. I like the halftime show, you know. I I, I I like the weekend a lot, so... Yeah, the weekend's good. I kind of didn't realize he had so many hits, but um, I gotta say that I, I liked the uh, set design and just the production of the whole thing. I thought it was quite entertaining to yeah. watch. I feel like I I proceeded to look up a couple past Super Bowl halftime shows and realized that like while they may have been good, almost all of them have the nearly the same design of big circle that's also a screen that the artist stands on in the middle of the field. Except for Prince. Except for a few. Prince, Michael Jackson, and Beyonce. And it just felt kind of nice to, like you yeah. said, it was No, it was stands. nice to be different. I did like that a lot. I thought it was entertaining. Um, I also kind of liked the tunnel part, because that was what his music video actually <laughs> looked like. And it made for some really good memes. So It did. It did. It was kind of funny. But he also didn't kill the power like Beyonce did. So there is that <laughs> win for him. For some reason, I thought he was going to have uh, another musical star with him. He turned and, down any guests. 
And to be honest, I don't think you really needed it. Yeah, it could have been helpful. Drake could have been there because they could have done a couple songs that I really like. Okay. Him and Drake have a lot of really great songs together. That's fair. Um, That's but fair. I did like the... I didn't realize how much he looked like the tethers from us when he had like all the bandages and whatnot <laughs> until the halftime show. But I did like that. I don't know if this was intentional, but the way they moved and the way he did things, it was kind of a call to that, mm-hmm. which is really impactful because of the NFL unity message, all of that. And that was a big message from us. So I did like that. That was cool. One last question. Okay. I this is a really have, long. What if I might have two more. Um, I'm just critiquing you because you stole what if for me. I might have done that. Last thing, you know, I, you know, naturally, I was on Twitter during and uh, in the following days after the Super Bowl, and yeah. a lot of people are up in arms about how can you uh, uh, pay your respects to healthcare workers and also have 25,000 people together Facts. in the stadium. Facts. I was going to ask what you thought about that, but I think you just uh, gave it away. One, I was shocked that there were that many people there because I. I think I've been I've been desensitized to fans in stadiums because I'm I'm so accustomed to them not being there, right? Like mm-hmm. even in uh, I'm a Lions fan. This isn't a secret. Um, Michigan has very strict protocols, and the only people who are in the stands are family, and it's even limited to what family can be there. So I don't tend to look at the stands. Um, and for their credit, they did a really good job of the part that you saw the most. Also, was the part that had the most. Um, uh, cardboard cutouts. Yes, cardboard cutouts. Where I was like, oh, they're just cardboard. Oh, no, I see people moving. I see a lot of people moving. Well, what was interesting is like when I looked at the stands the first time, I was like, holy crap. Like, I yeah. didn't realize they were just together. 25,000 people in the stadium. I'm sure that stadium can hold more. Why are they oh, all together? More. Yeah. And then when they like actually zoomed in, like there was a lot of cardboard cutouts between them. But none of them were wearing masks. I would imagine that, that might have been the 7,500. In that part people that were already vaccinated and plus you're outside that doesn't fix all the problems oh well yeah where else no i don't think it does but i mean if you especially because of how they were moving and i just i think two things one the nfl does it gets no trophies from me for any good things that it does i'm gonna be transparent um <laughs> having alicia keys seeing um lift every voice cool no one asked for that you got rid of Colin Kaepernick because he took a knee and have literally made it a campaign to not let him have a career, and now you care about black voices. Thank you, next. Um, I know, it's like, <laughs> it's like oh, like Tom Brady has kind of some whack views. He's also a Trump supporter. But we get to, we get to ignore his political views, but we don't get to ignore Colin Kaepernick. Yep. Um, you really put up a big fuss about COVID and... You, again, are a bunch of Trump supporters, so you don't, you mostly didn't believe it was real. Um, congrats that you had a really thoughtful message that told people that we're all in it together and you decided to highlight um, frontline workers after also making their job harder by not actually having really good protocols when it comes to COVID. Thank you, next. Like, I just, I don't, I don't care about the like small little things that they did mm-hmm. because in the big scheme of things, my personal opinion is the NFL is still kind of trash. Do I still watch it? Yes. Is this like a Chick-fil-A situation? Sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's hate how chicken, I feel. Hate football? Yep, hate football. <laughs> that's fair. We love it here. And like Twitter was going crazy because they were like, um, do you support 
the Chiefs, who are inherently um, inappropriate because of their mascot, let's go and be kind of nice, um, or do you lean on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who are a bunch of Trump supporters? But a lot of people did highlight that, at least with Tampa Bay, they have a very diverse coaching staff, which was unique because that is yes. not yes, seen anywhere that. else. It was like the first woman coach to ever win mm-hmm. um, the Super Bowl as one of part of the coaching staff on Tampa Bay. Good for them. Um, but really, to answer your question, Terrell, uh, if I was Patrick Mahomes, I would have just been very disappointed in the in my team. Would you have been as disappointed as the Seattle Seahawks were when they went for a pass on the one yard line? <laughs> No, that was more infuriating. <laughs> and what I was hoping was I was hoping Kansas City would uh, do what Seattle couldn't, and they just just blatantly lost. So Terrell. Today, as we're recording this, uh, Tuesday, February 9th, uh, a month and three days ago was the insurrection, and today, today is the first day of the impeachment trial for Donald Trump. His second. second. (laughs) Nice, nice. His second impeachment trial. His second impeachment trial. The only president in history to be impeached by the House twice. So now, Terrell, will he be convicted is the question. Will he be convicted? That is a question. Another question is, how did we get here? <laughs> um, January 6th, if we're being honest. No, oh, but it had to come before that, right? I mean, yeah, if we really dive into it, there's a unique question here of how did the Republican Party get to this point? And also, how did the Democratic Party get to a space where they would be willing to impeach a president twice? You know what I mean? I mean, I don't think it was that hard. Really? To impeach the president twice? Think about it. If anything... How many presidents have been impeached? If anything, it was easier the second time. Oh, 100% easier the second time. But is that not a consequence of why the first time mattered as much as it did? Because one of the leading arguments from the House impeachment managers were, if you don't impeach him now, he will only do worse later. Plot and twist. Look where we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think what I mean by that though is, before Donald Trump, the next impeachment was Bill Clinton. The Republican Party rammed through an impeachment because the president lied under oath about having sexual relations with an intern. Mm-hmm. And that was their view of what. And that was their view. And that was their view of what in, what was impeachable. The president lying under oath is impeachable. So you you fast forward, what, twenty? How old am I? Twenty six. You fast forward about twenty six, twenty seven years, and um, that same party is voting against convicting a president of a quid pro quo with a foreign con- foreign country to influence an election and is today voted overwhelmingly that impeaching him this time after Mitch McConnell 
held up the trial and called it unconstitutional to try him after he's left office. They're now saying that it's unconstitutional for them to impeach, to convict him after he committed and incited an insurrection. So when I say how do I, I feel like it's hard to talk about how we get here, I think it's hard because the stakes and where the political parties are in 2021 are so vastly different than where they were 94, where they were in, in 1960, when I, when I would really argue all of this kind of got um, set in motion. How did it get set in motion in the 60s? LBJ and his radical idea of caring about African-Americans in America. Um, like, the Republican Party will always argue that they're the party of Lincoln, right? They'll say <laughs> Lincoln was a Republican and he he fought to keep the Union together. The grand old party. The grand right? old party. But what they neglect to mention is in, 1960, in the 1960s, after the assassination of John F. Kennedy... Southern Democrats left the party in droves to join the Republican Party because LBJ took a stance on civil rights and pushed through and and got the votes for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Act, which Southern Democrats could not stand. They couldn't stand the idea that this group of people that they didn't view as even human were finally going to have an ability to participate in the country that they have been fighting for for generations. And Republicans find it easy to neglect that notion. But I think, I very much think that sets in the frame how we get to where we are now, where you have a party that is legitimately and potentially imploding on itself after a man before the 2016 election said, I would run as a Republican because I could say whatever and they would just believe it. I, I feel like it's hard to forget that historical perspective when, in all honesty, the the Republican Party is a reflection of that to this day. And I guess maybe to point this out, you can see that in how um, party leadership, uh, notably really Kevin McCarthy, handled uh Possibly outing either Liz Cheney or Marjorie Taylor Greene in the House just last week and somehow managed to defend both of them. Yes. And you can see it in <laughs> you can see it in the autopsy report after Mitt Romney lost to Obama. The Republican Party had an autopsy report that said if they had any hope of ever winning the White House again, they would have to move and become more inclusive. Their future leaders would have to be inclusive. They would have to have conversations centered around women, not just around abortion. They would <laughs> actually have to have conversations about marginalized communities. And the Republican Party was on the precipice, the precipice of actually following that. Are you sure? Look at that election. Granted, it resulted in Trump because it was so just too over liberal <laughs> um, because it was too crowded but you had marco rubio running you had multiple women running in that election you had diversity the issue was the republican party sucks at convention uh, mechanics and don't have 
granted they Democrats hate this, they don't have super delegates that can protect you from something like a Donald Trump from winning. Um, I love Marco Rubio saying all no. this bad stuff about Trump and then just like immediately like flipping sides because and that that's literally my point. Trump proved that they didn't have to listen to the autopsy. They didn't have to change who they were anymore because Trump showed them that they didn't need to change who they were. Trump showed them that they could win the white folk and still win the election. And this is also why I think it's important that the Democrats recognize that they also are a part of this because if you go back to the 1960s, a commitment was made in that moment. The U.S. government under Lincoln promised black and brown folk that the country would finally see them. The country would finally would finally be there for them. The country would make them citizens. And it took until 1960 for even half of that promise to come true. And the Democrats, not the Southern Democrats, the Democrats as they are today leaped into that promise and said, we are here. They saw their party leader get assassinated for doing that and still committed to it. We are 60 years from that day, from that action, and African-Americans are better off to an extent. We can go into the same colleges and universities as white folk. We don't have colored-only bathrooms. We don't have colored-only pools. A pool isn't getting drained because I dipped my toe in it. But when you look at our standing in this country, when you look at our earnings, they have not gotten inherently better. And some can argue that they are worse because there's more systems in place that are showing themselves that never got fixed to begin with. And for the Democratic Party, while the Republican Party might be struggling right now with what facts are and how to adjust to a diversifying country and all of these other things that might result in them splitting as a party, the Democrats are on the precipice of losing their one back, their, their literal backbone, the African-American vote, because for 60 years they have not shown up. Or when they did show up, it was just a nice speech. And they've gotten comfortable with the idea that they elected the first black president. They've gotten comfortable with the idea that they've been able to show diversity, but they haven't really done policies of diversity. So I think those two, those two pieces subsuppose where we're at right now of a party that is now trying to identify and, and support this voting bloc that it has neglected for 60 years and sees that because of Trump specifically. So that's why they're coming out so harshly against him in some spaces. And then for the Republican Party, you have a party that got to see itself in Donald Trump and didn't have to change anything. So they don't want to go against him. But at the same time, you're seeing the repercussions of all of these views and these ideas that we can just have white folk vote for us and still win, show the ugliness that this country has always had and making it very difficult for the Republican Party to say that it can still be a conventional party. So kind of on your point to uh, uh, Democrats, um, you kind of, you didn't mention it like the way I'll mention it now, but there seemed to be since since the Civil Rights Act and all all those uh, reforms back in the 60s. Um, since then, in terms of white liberals, there seems to be kind of a, a white illusion of, oh yeah, like 
it's slow, but things have gotten much better for the rest of the country um, over the years. Yeah. My question is, I say illusion because, well, it's an illusion. Has has really that much changed since the 60s? I'm not sure. But my question is, um, Joe Biden has, when he won, has acknowledged the African-American support. I mean, mm-hmm. that's very clearly how he even won the primary yeah. um, in the past year. Shout out to Clyburn. Um, so I guess my question is, uh, do you think that Democrats are starting to do a better job of ag- acknowledging it and maybe understanding that maybe things haven't been as, uh, ha- haven't been better really since the sixties. I think the jury's still out. Okay. Um, too early, uh, too, too early. close to call. Yeah. Too close to call. <laughs> this is election night and we are waiting for more results to come in from Nevada. <laughs> That's the name of the episode. Too close to call. Um, I think we, we were talking about this a little bit earlier and I, I, I think to the Hillary Clinton example, I think Hillary Clinton was a shock to the system, but not the most appropriate shock to the system. I, I think a lot of people recognize that African-Americans didn't turn out to vote for her and took that as African-Americans pick the other the other it, it became a binary when it didn't have to because not only did african-americans not show up for african-americans did not vote and that is how trump ended up becoming president so did african-americans not vote in that election because of what you were saying about democrats kind of like pretending like things were better but not actually acknowledging policies and things for african-americans or acknowledging that african-americans are basically how that party has power yeah and I think yes, and I also think, I also think, and maybe I'm biased because I I was a Hillary Clinton supporter and still am. Um, well, bias alert. <laughs> can't with you, but I think, I think that's the issue. Is it becomes a policy argument as if Hillary Clinton didn't go far enough? When I think there were a lot of policies that African Americans and other company or uh, communities bought into and supported but i do think that the the issue with hillary clinton was you had another candidate running far more to the left and promising to do things that i don't think were feasible at that time and still haven't become feasible in 2021 but younger populations bought into that so that that stirred the pot of well she's not going far enough you have this man over here who's willing to entertain the conversation about reparations Versus this female who is not is not entertaining that she's talking about criminal justice reform in the lightest sense while she meets with the mothers of African American men who've been murdered by police. You you also have the opposite party coming out and saying she thinks that all African-Americans are super predators. You have them making arguments that she's pandering because she said she had hot sauce in her bag. So I think I think it's really hard to say that the reason... It's really hard to do the either-or situation in the Clinton case, not because African-Americans didn't support her, but because the policies she put forth were not actually being judged. It was her, the candidate, not the things that she's doing. 
versus Joe Biden, where I think more of the policies are starting to be judged and more people were able to say, he's thinking about this. He took Kamala Harris's 3 a.m. plan, modernized it for him, or uh, modernized it, sure, for himself and made it something that he felt comfortable with and could pass that would actually do good. He's thinking about this. We're thinking of policy. We're not thinking of him, the candidate, who, if we haven't forgotten, was in a debate and got called out by his now VP <laughs> for supporting or for voting against busing. So mm-hmm. that's where I think it becomes difficult because you have a situation where a candidate was judged far more harshly for who she was. And now you're in a space where the candidate's getting some leeway, but his policies are being judged and his policies are actually showing to have some hope. I think that's pretty interesting, Terrell. Uh, I kind of want to not exactly switch gears, but I kind of want to talk more about the Republican Party now. Um, and, and, how, and how we got here, when do you think that the modern Republican Party of that is today really began? Is it something that began with Trump? Or, no. I mean, what, how long has this been in the making? And you might have alluded to it already. Yeah, 100%. Um, well, I think the shift began in the 60s. I think the modern political party that is calling itself the Republican Party um, started under Newt Gingrich in the 90s, but really went into its own in 2010 when you saw the Tea Party literally get created, not out of any need to change what's happening in politics or come up with a better way to um, function as a government or limit government. No, they came to be because Republicans were compromising with Obama too much and this party wanted to make Obama one-term president. And now you well, see them. Well, wait a second. What, what what makes you think this all started with Newt Gingrich, specifically back in the 90s? Um, let's see. Impeaching a president for what he considered high crimes and misdemeanors because he had an affair while in office. I'm not giving any green light to Bill Clinton's history <laughs> here, just to clarify. Um but going on a full out, we will ram this through the house, not because of any reason, not not because of any any idea, but because we like the optics of us holding this president that we think is too wild accountable, and we think it's a winning strategy. Granted, he didn't lost the house, which is one of the greatest justifications of how awful Newt Gingrich was, but here the Republican Party lays. Okay, okay, so... so- I've heard this a lot, actually, um, that impeachment is more of a political move than anything. No. Well, but I want... Except uh, most examples prove it, but no. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my question is, and I, I'll be honest, I'm not well-versed in the history of impeachments, but do you think that impeachment has been mostly political since Bill Clinton's impeachment, or has it always been that way? It's always been that way. <laughs> so, um, so what was different about about this time? Andrew Johnson got impeached because the Congress did not like that he was slow walking Reconstruction. So they literally created a law that <laughs> they knew he was going to violate after they passed it. He didn't actually sign a law, if I'm correct. It just gets it got passed because he took too long to veto it, um, and he then violated violated it the house impeached him within a 
a few months. Um, and he almost got convicted by the Senate, except one senator had a conversation with him and the Senate gave him an ultimatum of passing all the amendments or get convicted and removed. And he caved to the Senate. So, yes, very political. Um, I think what's different from that versus where we are now and what happened with Clinton. In Andrew Johnson's case, I think there's arguments to be made that, one, he he's known historically as one of the worst presidents we've ever had, but he also was making an, an honest and aggressive attempt to slow walk, ruin, and disrupt Reconstruction. Mind you, one of the things um, Trump is being impeached for right now is for his incitement of insurrection, which is a part of the amendment that Andrew Johnson passed, which a lot of people argue he is he did and why he needed to be convicted. Um, but when you look back at when you look back at Clinton's impeachment, it was not bipartisan, at least to my knowledge. I I defer to historians on that one. Um, very similar to where Trump is right now. When it went to the Senate, they knew he was going to be acquitted. But there was a real conversation of was his obstruction of justice, his lying under oath, what the founders envisioned as a high crime and misdemeanor? Not saying it wasn't wrong, but is it at such a height that the president had to be removed from office because he was delegating his job he was he wasn't doing it at any point and most americans didn't feel that way most senators didn't feel that way but the newt gingrich calculation and the republican party's calculation is we dislike him so much that it doesn't matter and we are willing to throw the kitchen sink and see how it goes and now we're in a space where the republican party is trying to play the same game with the democrats and and where they are um, with Trump, but neglect the fact that that high crime and misdemeanor point matters. In the quid pro quo, it was accused, or he was accused of trying to influence the election with foreign aid. That is a high crime and misdemeanor. That that is a dereliction of your duties as a president because you are undermining the system you swore to to protect. And now he's being brought up for an insurrection which again is a high crime and misdemeanor. So I think those are the distinctions that matter here of not so much is it political, but what do we really count as a threshold for a president deserves or should be removed? And then again, to, to the conversation we've been, we started with and we've been on is how do we have a party that can justify removing a president for, well, impeaching a president and wishing he was removed for lying under oath, but can then turn around and say that a quid pro quo and an insurrection is not unless it has something to do with power and unless it has something to do with a view that your voting block matters more than the Constitution you were sworn, you were sworn to serve. I think it's interesting that you kind of bring up how... How could they do that during Bill Clinton and then turn right around 20 years later and kind of do basically the same thing but on the opposite side? 
And, you know, there is this article I was reading in the New York Times um, by Frank Bruni, and it's talking about, um, it talks about several different things within the Republican Party, but one of them uh, is kind of like the current state of the Republican Party. And he uses the example of how Republicans are just absolutely freaking out over these metal detectors. So after the insurrection on January 6th, um, basically they've, They've installed metal detectors. Um, the House, I believe, did it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't just carry your gun into the into the chambers anymore because, yeah, insurrection happened. That's scary. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then and now some Republicans have just been freaking out, like claiming they've been muzzled. All these things. Um, one of the uh, quotes from the article is actually kind of funny. I, I think the whole thing is like funny, but it's ironic, like in a bad way. So here it is. Apparently, if you can't pack heat in proximity to Nancy Pelosi, you're living in a totalitarian state. That's not me being sarcastic. That's Representative Debbie Lesko's actual interpretation of the events. Lesko, an Arizona Republican, tweeted that the new security screening was proof that lawmakers and in quotes, now live in Pelosi's communist America. And the modern Republican Party for y'all folks. I mean, and then you have Devin Nunes going, I'm not joking. When you talk about the fall of the Soviet Union, what did they start to do? They started to crack down. They started to crack down on people. And that's what you see here. My God, Terrell. But like the author of this article goes on to say, I'm not joking. These lawmakers are ridiculous, but they're ridiculous in ways that illuminate two themes that keep growing brighter, or maybe I should say darker in Republican politics now. One is the reflexive attempt to divert attention from the florid craziness in their own ranks and own base by screaming communist, socialist, or radical left. The other is to claim that they're protecting freedom when they're sanctioning nonsense. So I really kind of relate it back to what you said about that impeachment piece there. Mm -hmm. Um, They kind of hide behind, well, our actions are justified because radical left, they're communists, they're socialists. When I look around and... What they're claiming does not seem to exist, at least not in the in an organized quantity as the far right does. So I mean, who 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 staged an insurrection against the government here? It wasn't Democrats and socialists and communists. Although they did try to blame blame Antifa. Of course they did. So I have a question. We talked about where the parties, how we got here where we are for the most part where are we going and i'll own i maybe i made some generalizations in in this conversation as well but where do you think we are going like where do you think the republican party is where do you think the the democrats are where does this lead us to especially after what you shared knowing that that is a part of the Republican Party currently? Like, is the entire Republican Party infected, or is it is it just a small minority, and we're going to see them die out? Like, where do we go from here? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question, and uh, let me put on my punditry glasses here. Um, it's hard to tell where the Republican Party is going because you have, again, like I kind of mentioned at the beginning, you have Kevin McCarthy... Um, protecting both Liz Cheney and Marjorie Taylor Greene 
when one side is obviously insane and nuts and shouldn't be really in Congress <laughs> at all, to be honest. Um, and it's like, okay, so where, so you've staved off that attack, attack McCarthy, but where are you going next? And the reality is, at least this is what Republicans think, because to them, for them, it feels like it's about power because, because we can sit here and go, okay, kind of like you were saying earlier, the path forward to power and being a party for, for the people is being more inclusive, is not just looking for white votes. It's changing your policies. It's changing kind of who you are as a party, but it's shifting so you can still retain that power. But instead, they kind of just kept reverting back to, we're only going to look for white voters here. That's their main that's their main constituency and the reason why Kevin McCarthy isn't like isn't taking out Marjorie Taylor Greene or Republicans in general aren't uh it's because that's that's what they think their voter base is. If they go against it, if they go against Marjorie Taylor Greene, then they're going to lose. That's their fear. It shouldn't be their policies and their choices shouldn't be dictated about the fear of losing a political campaign to far-right QAnon supporters. But that's mm-hmm. kind of where they're at. And, you know, they don't want to get necessarily get rid of Liz Cheney. That just To me, that holding just showed where Republicans are secretly behind the door. Um, as for Democrats, well... Democrats are kind of interesting because um, I know you specifically have made the claim that they're going to be in power for the next 12 years. Potentially. Oh, gosh. I'd love to see that. What would happen if that was true? Um, where do they go from here? Well, I think Joe Biden's been doing a good job so far. I, it's only been a month. So, I mean. Has it even been a month yet? Not even. We still have. <laughs> it's only been like three weeks. Um, yeah. So we'll see what happens in the coming years there. But, I mean, obviously Democrats have a challenge in 2022, um, and they will have a challenge in 24, and so on. Um, but it, I've always thought that Democrats' messaging has sucked. I, oh, my gosh. They kind of make so me much mad. Snapping. So I, much snapping. I don't know if they need to go to the low of what Republicans do in some of these campaigns. But I what think... What do you mean? Put devil horns on every Republican's face? Like they made... Oh, I don't know. Make uh, Raphael Warnock from Georgia blacker. Yeah. And or Ossoff's nose longer. Because like, he's Jewish. The only comparison is if we actually put devil horns on every Republican because that's their true feature. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's too low, but I wouldn't be against it. Um, <laughs> well, I think like like Democrats, to me, and, and we've had conversations about this, and this is probably a larger conversation for another time where we just look solely at the Democratic Party. But in terms of messaging, the way I see it is Democrats, like their policies, $15 minimum wage, legalizing marijuana, uh, health care, Criminal justice reform for all or for more people, whatever it is, those policies seem to be popular amongst a lot of people, including a lot of Republicans, too. But Democrats are losing Um, in the places where these reforms are super popular. Like even in Idaho, like the people passed Medicare, like the Medicaid expansion or was it Medicare or Medicaid? I don't remember, but they passed the expansion. Um, like a 60-something percent to whatever percent. Mm-hmm. Vast majority. But like a Democrat will never win in Idaho. Democrats, to me, it's not just a messaging problem. It's a branding problem. Because Democrats would have an easier time winning if 
voters could connect those policies that they love to the Democrats running. And for some reason, they can't seem to do that. And to me, that's a big branding problem. So the future of Democrats is going to be interesting now that we have power. It's going to be interesting to see how 2022 goes. Yeah, I I can concur. I also wouldn't be opposed to every Republican being fitted with devil horns or maybe turtle <laughs> shells, but that's neither here nor there. Um, no, I... If I'm going to make a bold prediction, I'm going to say that... Bold prediction. <laughs> I'm going to say that the Republican Party splits in two. I, I just don't think... Really? You think that's going to happen? I don't think they can sustain this way much longer. I don't think they can either, but I won't... I, I'll, I'll put some faith in them. I think they can last quite a while. I think, for me, the concern is... They tried. When the Tea Party came to be, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, all the powers to be, pulled them in and and let them have power but muzzled them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now you're in a space where Marjorie Taylor Greene is... Still in Congress. <laughs> still in Congress. You were afraid to even remove her from her committees. You had a, you had another representative literally bring on the floor a tweet of her holding an AK-47 and saying she's going to be the squad's biggest problem. Like that's not, Yikes. that's not the Tea Party anymore. That's not we're here to stop a president from doing that. That's crazy. She thought that the Parkland shooting was staged. That is crazy. And the Republican Party is in a space right now where those are the people that they are seeing win. They aren't seeing the moderates win anymore. They aren't seeing the individuals who are looking to compromise win. They're seeing the people who think that Nancy Pelosi is a part of a sex trafficking ring of children win. That party can't survive if facts aren't real. No matter what the leaders do, they will always be in the wrong based on what some random dude behind his computer by the name of QAnon post. And QAnon doesn't like the Republicans that much. They only like Trump. So yeah, I don't think the Republican Party survives this. But at the same time, I'm worried about the Democrats because they've had 60 years to show up for a community beyond Social Security, beyond social services and safety nets. And now's their moment. Now's their moment. If they don't show up, they are at risk of never being a party that can win an election because the base that has put them in power, now what? Uh, Clinton, Obama, Biden. Three of the, three, all three of their last presidents in the modern era. That base might leave them. And if you lose a group of people, it's not easy to just bring them back within a cycle. You can't just do something to bring them back. And I'm not saying that this is hard, fast science, and I'm not saying that all African Americans vote Democrat. A majority of them do, as is shown. But I am saying that conversations about reparations aren't enough anymore. Conversations about 
criminal justice reform are not enough anymore. These need to be conversations around disenfranchisement. These need to be conversations around uh, Washington, D.C. having statehood as it would be the only state to have a majority-minority population. These need to be conversations about redlining and how they've impacted schools. These need to be conversations around health care. This is that moment. This is the the one leader that I think could do it. And I'm very, very skeptical that the Democrats are in a position where they're willing to go that bold yet because suburban white women. <laughs> well, Terrell, I, um, I kind of want to leave off uh, with one last thing for for our podcast. Um, as you may know, two days before uh, Trump was actually uh, out of office, um, he had his 1776 commission release their report on uh, <laughs> what basically Trash. What, our, <laughs> what our history is and what schools should teach and Trash. patriotism and the how our we should be proud of how our country was founded, you know, things like that. Um, and so I... I, I was reading this article, and it, it's called The 1776 Follies, and there was kind of a line in it, and um, the article is by Michael uh, Kazin-Kazin, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but um, there was a line, the very last paragraph of this article, because um, Joe Biden on his first day took it away, um, it says, now that the 1776 commission is deprived of federal authority, its influence will wane more quickly than that of the president who established it. Hmm. Not that Donald Trump showed any curiosity about the history of the country he promised to make great again. It's a complex fate being an American, Henry James once, once wrote. Neither the 45th president nor his designated propagandists may ever comprehend that fundamental truth. The end. I want to say that's hopeful, but Utah also just voted to allow parents to opt children out of Black History Month. So it might not die with Trump. (laughs) No, no. I think it's more just talking about that the influence of just this commission specifically will go away, but Donald Trump and his ideals won't as fast if they do. Um, but I think that's all from us. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week. <laughs>